Hi, I want to welcome you to Raising Playful Tots. My name is Melitza. I hope this show is a place where mothers like you can safely explore a slower, simpler and playful lifestyle so that you can get to the heart of what your family needs to thrive both now and in the years to come. It's good to be back. Last show we talked about nurturing and mastering whole family systems during the school age years. All those good ideas like family meetings, contributions and meal times need a system and systems take time to develop in any household. During the school age years, children are beginning to do more. We'll be sharing more. Lots of things go wrong during this time too. That episode was all about how to work on all those different systems so that they work together. The whole family system. That show is show number 198. At the beginning, it was hard to let them out of our sight. We had baby monitors, maybe we had a camera. Eventually, we didn't just steal into their rooms just to watch them breathe when they slept. We began to let them stay with other people other than family for a little bit and then a little bit longer. They went off to nursery or daycare or school and they spent longer times away with trusted adults. Then they started asking about going out with friends and eventually they were off on their own. That timeline is very different for each of our children. None of us want to overprotect our children. Overprotecting means different things to each of us. It's also something that makes us feel guilty. I'm reframing overprotection today to say, how do we gently, carefully learn to let them grow? Today I want to talk about seven things we can do to stop overprotecting and letting them grow. We've got a lot to get through, so let's get started. Number one, prepare with next stage peers. So this is about talking with friends that have children in the next stages. So if you have elementary age kids, then talking to friends and other parents that have middle schoolers. If you're lower primary, then the upper primary or secondary. If you're middle school, talking to high school parents. Find out what their struggles are. Ask questions. Join Facebook groups like ours, the Society of Nimble Parents. Talk to people that are going through this next stage. Follow blogs or podcasts or videos from those that are in and going through those next stages. The reason we do this is to anticipate and let these ideas sit with you. What would you do as a parent if those situations had come up in your family? Not to criticize or pass judgment on the people that are talking to you, but for it to help you to learn what you might do and trigger you to think, what would I do with my family? How does it work in your family if that situation had occurred? What do you think you might have done? Number two, doing things for the child that the child could do independently. Part of growing up is children learning how to do things. It doesn't mean that we don't do things for them ever again. A good example is making lunch. I can make lunch for my children. They can also learn to make lunch. It might be easier and better if I make it in the short term, but long term, they need to learn how to make lunch. Does this mean they will always make lunch? No, I'll make it from time to time, but they need time to practice. 
Maybe they'll learn part of the system of making lunch. Maybe they'll learn all of it. But they need to learn the system of what goes into a decent lunch. They need to feel the work of making a lunch. There will be time when I see the need to finish up something and I can step in and make that lunch occasionally, but I also need to support them so that they learn how to manage their time. So it is just occasionally that I help them with lunch rather than always doing it a lot. This is a really fickle area of personality and temperament. Do you have a child who just gets on with things and makes lunch or will they procrastinate and can't decide what they're going to do? Whatever type of personality, it does them all good to learn how to do things independently. Some children will dive in and be good to make their lunch without help. Others will need step-by-step -step coaching. Sometimes we will go forwards and backwards with it. We'll do it for part of the time. Sometimes they will want to really run with it and be independent. Other ideas are getting their bag ready for the next day. Can your child do that independently for themselves? Laying out all of their clothes or their uniform for the next day. Filling in some forms that you get from school. Sometimes they send form home, forms home that you could fit, you have to fill out yourself. And sometimes they send forms home where the children could fill out a lot of it by themselves and you just have to sign it and do the other part. Obviously, there are going to be some forms that you really can't do that, really important forms, and it really depends on their age and stage. As they're getting older, middle school and higher, I would expect that they will be able to fill out more and more of this information themselves, and we will be filling out less. What about picking up their own room? These are things that sometimes we continue to do when they can be let go and the children can learn how to do them ind independently. Some tougher ones for parents are getting the lunch box out of the bag. If children can do that independently, they can remember to come and put it in the kitchen and we don't have to go and retrieve it for them, but we do. Getting the notes out of bags as well. Children should be able to give you the notes from school and all of the things that they need to give to us, but often they forget and they languish in their bags. Putting away forgotten pens or things that they were doing, they just get up and go and do something else. It's easy. We just pick it up and put it away ourselves because we're going in that direction, right? These are things that they can do independently. Putting their homework in the bag, how many times have we seen it just laying on the table and we thought, oh, they meant to pick that up. I'll just put it in their bag for them. Completing homework. If you're ready to start with trying lunch, for example, then I have a guide for you, the Parent's Guide to Transitioning from Doing the Packed Lunch. I have a link for that in the show notes so that you can see where you would like to start in that system. If you find yourself constantly doing more when you know that they could do better for themselves, think of one area and how you could slowly remove yourself from that situation slowly being the word. You can't just disengage, but have a plan for how you're going to do less, but empower them to do more. Maybe they constantly leave that homework on the table and they've got used to you always putting it away, or they don't really think about it. 
they don't think about how their homework got from the table to their bag because it just did. Maybe you will be thinking about how you can talk about that with them so that they learn how to do that for themselves. What words will you use? How will you use those words? Or are you going to be really uh, snippy about it and keep complaining? Or will you empower them and encourage them to be able to do something different? Or are you just going to stop doing it and let the consequence happen? Because the consequence is small in this stage that it won't make a big wave, but enough for them to feel the pain of it for something to change. Number three. Teach them what to do in tough situations. There's those discovery questions that we like to ask our children about values. So those are the questions like, what's a kind thing that you saw today? If we talk a lot about kindness, children will realize that this is an important thing in our family. If you talk about grades, then children think this is all we want to talk about. If you're struggling with falling into the grades trap, you know, when you wanted to ask about one grade maybe, and then all the questions that you're asking are about grades until perhaps your child shuts down. At the end of the conversation, you're thinking, I was only gonna ask about one thing, and now you realize it's too late. They've shut down, they don't wanna talk about anything, no more conversation is happening. I have a recent post called 10 questions to ask your child instead of what was your grade and it has a free pdf of the 10 questions for you to be able to ask those questions instead of what was your grade and get real conversation going there are another type of question that we like to get from children they're the hypotheticals there's that fun game would you rather eat a fly or be buried in sand none of those things would work for me but if I had to choose I guess be buried in sand up to your neck this is an example of a question that you would ask a child to see what they would do in a given situation it's really good if you can add the word why that makes all the difference because they have to give an explanation it doesn't have to be accurate but it just makes them think a little further and it stops some of the flippant comments that that might come about there's also another type of question that you can try. You can try some situational questions gleaned from those next stage peers that we talked about from number one and pose them. So if the atmosphere is shared and there is no lecturing that's going on, you can have a really interesting discussion about a really relevant topic. I have a set of character conversation cards, both audio and PDFs that do exactly that. And I'll leave a link for those in the show notes. They share a short situation and what would you do if you were in that situation? It's great to be able to read them out or listen to them with the children and for them to be able to give what they think that they would do. I also have a show called Handy Conversation Starters that get real conversation which goes into more depth about character conversation cards and why we should use them and how great they are to use with this school age. And you can find that at show number 183. I also have a Pinterest board all about conversation questions. So that's whether you want the discovery questions, the situational questions, 
um, the hypothetical questions or just a set of questions that you would like to be able to ask instead of how was your day, I have a handy list of many different types of questions that you can just dive into. Not all children can think through tough situations. Tough situations are just tough. We want them to be able to think through these tough situations before they are in these tough situations. And so this provides a great time to be able to do that if you actually have questions. They can actually think through tough situations with you before they're in them. So that gives us time to actually speak into those situations and help them with ideas. They learn the value in talking through things before they happen, instead of being led by feelings alone. This is a valuable lesson to learn as early as possible because sometimes we make decisions based on our feelings, based on peer pressure, based on all sorts of things. And if we have another competing voice in our mind, we might have made a different decision. News reports and articles also give a really good opportunity for this, to be able to teach them what to do in tough situations. If you've read an article, if you've heard something, then you can talk about what would you have done in that particular situation. I remember a, a monastery um, post that really struck me. It was something like, what if your teen was at a party and you don't advocate for underage drinking and the designated driver who was driving them back and forth had decided to drink. There was alcohol there at the party and your teen didn't realize that there would be alcohol there until they were there and they know what your family's views are on alcohol, for example. Your child has to now make a decision. They know you'll be mad about the drinking because you've said they've talked about it. They know that they shouldn't drive with the driver that's been drinking, but they're far away and how are they going to get home? So they're kind of stuck. What decision should they make? Well, if my child was in that situation, I'd want mine to call me. But given that situation, would he call me? Because he knows that he's in a situation that's difficult. But no matter what, I want him to call me. Never mind whether he's in a difficult situation, but would he know to do that? Would he know that his safety tops everything? That struggle of knowing what to do would be great to be hashed out over dinner, in the car, on a journey, when the stakes are very low, than in real life, at that party or a friend's house, and your child is by themselves having to think quickly on his or her feet. Let them come up with some solutions what would they do? Work with them on problem solving with careful questions. Help them to be resourceful and not reduce their self-esteem by suggesting everything is wrong what they're saying or shooting down all of their ideas. Other examples of working through tough situations might be homework left at school, a forgotten textbook at a friend's house, a miscalculation of time it would take to complete a project and now it's 11 o'clock at night and there's no way that this project can be finished in time. Walking that line as a parent between rescuing and letting them be resourceful is so difficult and it's something that we have to walk. Sometimes we need to do both. We need to rescue them and help them and we need to be let them be resourceful 
And other times we also need to let them try. What are they going to do? How are they going to solve the problem? Let them exercise that muscle. If it's safe and it's the right thing to do. Number four, restricting independence unnecessarily. Julie Ross says in How to Hug a Porcupine, as children develop, it is wise to evaluate and reevaluate actual risk versus imaginary risk and then allow appropriate independence accordingly. I love how she says evaluate and re-evaluate actual risk versus imaginary risk because gosh we build up these ideas in our heads and we all do it it's so hard since we've lived in different places maybe than our children we have different risks now than we had in our childhood you probably remember Galit Breen talked about that in her book kindness wins and she came on the show and talked about how to be online in show number 197. Our childhoods, our childhoods were likely quite different in how our parents attended to us, how we could roam around the house and the area that many of our children can experience or even experience today. We react according to what we experienced or we saw in our childhoods as well, whether they were good or whether they were bad. All of these feed into the independence or lack of it that we give our child. When can they play outside by themselves? Which children can play by themselves? How far can they roam? Can they roam? When do they come back? How long do they stay? Who has to be in the house when they go and play? Questions like that change as the children get mobile to who else will be there? What adults? What children? How will you get back? Who is taking you? So children need to experience low risk independence. And it's kind of hard to find where that is. But we need to identify that and for them to be able to practice doing that because once we feel comfortable with them doing this low risk independence thing, we can gradually move along to being more and more independent. We teach them how to be responsible and independent and we support them as they do that. I can think of examples like restricting internet usage in place of teaching them about the internet. Sometimes we deliberately don't tell them much about the internet because we are afraid of all the terrible things that can happen. Well, the internet can be an amazing tool as well. And depending on the age and the stage of the child, we can teach them how to be safe online. We can do our due diligence and make sure that we have it as safe as possible and not restrict their independence by not teaching them how to use the, in the internet very well. As they get older, we will teach them more about the internet and we will spend less time with them while they're on the internet because they're learning how to navigate it. 
at the beginning, of course, we'll be spending a lot of time with them, showing them what to do, how to do things. Just because they're doing it in school doesn't mean that they, they know how to do it the way that you would like them to learn. Another one would be driving them to school when it's safe for them to get there by themselves, but it just makes you feel better to know that they are there. This is a, a, an example of how we just sometimes do what's easier for us as parents when it could be a good opportunity for your child to start with a little independence. Maybe they can ride their bike to school and it's safe or walk in the neighborhood to school because it's safe for them to do so. Maybe the first few times they're not going to do it all by themselves depending on their age. Maybe they'll walk with a friend. Maybe they'll practice with a friend or go with another family. Maybe they'll go part the way and you'll go part of the way. You'll find some system. But restricting independence completely to just driving them because you it's easier for you to do so is something that we all fall back on but if it's safe for them to be able to get to school by themselves then we should encourage them to be able to try this independence when we restrict their independence like that it makes them so dependent on us and it gets harder and harder as they grow older for us to let go of that dependency and it makes it harder for them to try and be independent because the stakes are so much higher when you're older to fail. Number five, provide a platform for them to learn how to share back and forth. As the children get older and older, sometimes it can be hard and I've heard lots of families report how difficult it is to talk to their children. They ask open-ended questions, they ask all different types of questions and the children just give them one-word answers because the kids think that there is some ulterior motive that's going on behind that original question. They're kind of scared and nervous and, and wonder what's really going on. So you really have to change up the different types of questions and have conversations, genuine conversations with the kids. The way to do that is actually to provide a platform for them to learn how to share back and forth. Much of the parenting before these school years has been focused on directing the children. They explored and we often directed, you know, don't play over there, come over here. And we allowed them to explore somewhat. As they're firmly in that why stage, why do we have to do this? Why is it like this? Why did it all the time? There needs to be space in family for discussions about these why questions, for us to have longer conversations, for us to directly teach them about something, for us to role play, for us to have a regular back and forth banter of laughing and joking and sharing family jokes among the family, whether that's older speaking to younger, younger speaking to elder, it doesn't matter which way around. We need to find a way that we can continue this back and forth. Often, many families find that children, as soon as they come into the house, they scatter. They go to their own personal spaces, whether that's on their phone or to their room or to a specific room in the house. And everybody is away from everybody else. Sometimes, even at mealtimes, it's not possible for everybody to be together. The times that people are together may be just when they're traveling in the car together. And even then, headphones go in, 
and people are busy listening to individual things, these are great times for us to be able to have a space to be able to learn how to interact and get on really well with each other. I love the family roundtable for that and I've had a lot of posts that teach you how to set up your own family roundtable and have your own family meeting and I'll link to those in the show notes. You want a place in your family rhythm when there's time to talk more about that random question that came up in the car. You know the one, where do babies come from? That you hastily said an answer and weren't able to come back to. Or is this a swear word? And then they say something that makes your hair curl and you think, I need to talk about this. We need a platform to be able to do this. Why does Medina's mum wear a headscarf? You gave some hasty answer, but you realise I want to talk a bit more about social justice or something else that's come up that you you want to, to bring up. Where is the time and the ability to be able to do that in your family rhythm? They need a place when we can talk and it's not a busy time. Everything is just slower. Like a lazy weekend afternoon, children can meander over and ask. It might be because you as adults are in different rooms or the kids are in different places and they can just kind of come over and ask that question that's been on their mind all week or something that's come to mind and they're a bit embarrassed to talk about it and they can catch you on their own. It might be a mealtime when you ask a question and then you just zip it and listen. There's no lecturing, there's no teachable point. You just want an opportunity to hear what your children have to say. School-aged children still need slow, unstructured times when ideas, questions and discussions, discussions can just pop up. Them sharing to us and not just us sharing to them. That's probably one of the biggest things that changes in the school age time is that it's not just us telling the kids what to do anymore. It shouldn't have been a lot of that before probably anyway, but it's, it's the changeover. It's beginning to change as we need to listen to them as they're starting to work out why things happen. We need a place when we explain things like why we have a fixed bedtime or why in our family we don't have a fixed bedtime. They need to understand why that happens and we need to have the opportunity to be able to share it with them. And that takes time. Boys especially like side-by-side -side time for talking, which has worked really well with my boys. Going on a run, walk after school, or a sit on the porch have all been much longer conversations because we were side-by-side and not face-to-face. Face-to-face -face conversations always produce stress, I think, for me as a mother and for them to think that they had to say the right thing. But standing side-by-side -side and walking or sitting side-by-side -side has helped us to have many more productive conversations because I'm not worrying about what I'm saying and they're not worrying about what their face is saying. I talk a lot about side-by-side -side time in this post, how side-by-side -side time nurtures, nurtures our boys. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. 
We've also done individual dates with each child at different stages. So um, when we lived overseas, that was a popular time that we could do it because there was lots of cafes and time allowed at that particular time. We're at a particular stage now where time doesn't allow for us to be able to do that individually. And that's okay too. My husband would take them for a walk or they would take a game and they would sit and play a card game or a board game. They might go for a hot chocolate or a pastry and it was their special time away. We tried to keep it simple. We tried to keep it um, not expensive. It wasn't meant to be a treat. It was just meant to be a time away where they could talk. Special things that they wanted to talk, just you know, father to son and work things out and just have a chance to catch up. He tried not to have a big agenda. It's so hard though, because you think of all these things, I want to tell them this, I want to share this, I want to do this story. But he tried really hard to not have an agenda. And he also tried to ask a few questions that he wanted to, and then he just listened. He wanted to hear his sons talk. So we've really need to think about a way that you can provide a platform for them to learn how to share back and forth in your house. What's that going to look like so that they have a chance to be able to talk more about their feelings and their thoughts, things that they're thinking of, and we have a chance to explain and that there is this back and forth between the ages as we all try and understand how life is for each other. This is where the empathy kicks in. This is where the understanding kicks in. Number six, resolving conflicts for the child. At the beginning of school, we will be supporting our children to learn how to manage conflicts. They'll come to us and we'll give our opinions. As they get older though, we need to share with them the skills of learning how to resolve conflict themselves. At the beginning, we don't have to ask them. They tattle on each other. They complain about each other all the time. It's not easy and it takes a lot of practice to learn how to resolve conflict at home and for each child. We've loved using plushies and teddies to act out situations depending on their age and stage. We've also done a lot of role plays, redone a situation and tried to be the other person and tried to say that as well. So this is where we need the time and the space to be able to do that, that we just talked about in number five. But we've practiced some of those things. If you are looking for a system about how to resolve conflict at home, I would really direct you to steps to uniting your house when you disagree and teaching family how to disagree appropriately, which is show number 174. It's a fantastic interview that talks about how to talk about conflict resolution and a system that you can use in your house. It gives you some really clear steps on, on what to do. I, that was a really fun interview to do. If you're looking for a book, I would really recommend Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life by Dr. Laura Markham. She does an excellent book on how to have that sibling conflict and to reduce it. Eventually, we want children who can advocate for themselves. So we have to teach them how to do that effectively. 
So that's us listening to them complain about a teacher, a tutor, a friend. And before we reach for the phone to talk to them, we ask a few more questions and find out what would be the right next step. It could be as easy as wait, cool off, then think. It's them telling us what they might do. It's a bit like in the tough situations what they would do or the questions. It's them practicing what they will say. They need to practice what they'll say and so they may need to practice with us what they're going to say before they go and say that. That would help them to resolve the situation. How many times have we heard somebody say things and we've thought if they'd only used a different word or if they'd just used a different tone, children need to understand those subtleties and often they won't know that until they practice that with us and they can learn it. Maybe they need to draft something and write something down. We can check that through. If they're handling a problem at school, it might be knowing the right words to use in that email or the right way to approach it with that teacher. They need opportunities to practice handling difficult situations. It's not an all or nothing. We help them completely or we're completely hands off. But this is kind of a balancing act that we have to do as parents is teach them the skills and then give them the opportunities to practice it. They will make mistakes, things won't be smooth, but they have to practice in order to get better. We need to help them and support them to structure what they're going to say. They need to be able to have something to lean against so that they can stand well. When we as parents constantly jump into conflicts at school or jump into conflicts at home, the children never learn how to manage those situations for themselves. It's up to us to guide them through and show them how and then let them. Number seven, give time to failure and growth mindset. School-age families are in a place to see failure happen again and again. Things just careen from good to bad to good to terrible in moments. In an age when we're looking for success, we must acknowledge the big role that failure plays rather than sweep it quietly under the carpet. What did you fail at today? Is the question that the Spanx founder's dad always asked her and her brother when they got home from school. It completely changed her mindset around failing. I'll leave the link to that video. It's really powerful in the show notes. Failure is a powerful motivator if we talk about it. If, if we celebrate success but don't mention failure, we're really doing our families a disservice because after failure comes success. We have to struggle for a long while after failure to get success. And in our instant society, it's hard. It's a hard path to keep treading. That morning system, you know, that new one that you tried when you decided that they're going to eat breakfast first and then wash up. Well, it failed. So then you tried, okay, let's get them to wash up first and then eat breakfast and it failed. Did you give up? 
Did you try something else? While we're going through this fail, try, succeed cycle and fail, fail, succeed, fail, try, fail, naturally children need to be talked through it, especially the try, the struggle and the fail part because that is a long section. What did you struggle with is another good question. Children probably want to know the catch if you've not asked this type of question before. They're used to you telling only the flowers and the blooms and not the bloopers and the bodge ups. So they're wondering why are they asking me about the difficult stuff? We should share our failures and our struggles too. Part of the problem that this centers around is that we only talk about the great stuff that's happened, the good things. What happens if you dedicated a week of nights of sharing failures? What would happen if you dedicated one night to talking about all the things that went wrong or things that have gone wrong? This is the prime time during the school age years that they're learning skills that they will fail at and eventually master. We need to be using the words like failure and succeed and master and struggle enough times for our children to understand that this is part of the whole process. We're not embarrassed by failure, we're not embarrassed by struggle. We want to see struggle and when, we f when you fail, we want you to be able to look at it and move on from it. We want to know their success too, but I don't think any of us needs any encouragement on what to do when our children are successful. This is the time when they're trying to master things like their times tables, and they'll fail at it spectacularly for the beginning part. They're learning how to pack their bags for school, and they'll miss things that they should have brought. They're learning how to hand in their slips so that they can get to go on that trip and maybe they won't remember in time and they won't go on one of those trips. They're learning to wash their hair and maybe for the first couple of times they'll just get soap everywhere and only have washed part of their hair. They're learning to shower independently and actually clean themselves well instead of just turn on the water and stand underneath it. They're learning how to put on a duvet cover and that's difficult and get wrestle with that duvet and get it on. It's going to take a little while. They might have to find a system. They might have to ask for help. They might have thought I could have done this by myself. How hard is it to make a bed? And then they found that the corners were too difficult because they'd got the wrong size sheet. This is the prime time for them to be failing and mastering things. They'll look back and smile when they're older that times tables are easy. Who can't pack their bag? They hand in their slips regularly. It's really easy to wash their hair. They're beginning to smell better because they're actually cleaning themselves well. They can strip a bed and put a bed back together in moments. There is lots of time during the school age time where they'll be encountering failure and success and we need to be able to talk about it. It's a time when they might start thinking about their intelligence and that they're not very bright and that they're losers 
and this type of language starts coming up. This is why we need to talk about failure as well. They might think that intelligence and failure are linked. It's because they're not intelligent while they're failing all the time. And that's just not true. But do we ever tell them that? Do they ever know that? Or do they just make that terrible link themselves and just believe it? If you've not looked at growth mindset before, then now is the time. Because this is what we're talking about. Growth mindset is something that Carol Dweck has talked about a lot. I have a board of resources to get you going if you've never looked at it or you want to dive in a little bit more with growth mindset. She has an amazing TED talk, uh, which is a great introduction to growth mindset and the power of the word yet. If you've not seen any of those, I really encourage you to listen to those TED talks. We know what to say when they succeed. We need to understand what to say and what not to say when they are struggling, when they're progressing, albeit slowly, or maybe they're failing. If you've got school-based failure that you want to talk about, then I have a double episode all about failure, mistakes, school, called when they make mistakes and fail practical ways to help parents and children learn how to navigate this under talked about topic during childhood and the second one is called progress as a better measure for our children they are show 189 and show 190 if you have a soon-to-be secondary school child or an almost middle school, I'd really recommend The Gift of Failure by Jessica Leahy. Reading it is great, but listening to it is so powerful hearing another parent speak those words. Children will need to persevere through struggle. They need to know when to quit and when to keep going, how to turn a mistake into a positive. And we don't help them as parents if we keep everything failure-free by anticipating everything and not allowing children to fail. As Leahy says from Gift of Failure, every time we rescue, hover, or otherwise save our children from a challenge, we send a very clear message that we believe they are incompetent, incapable, and unworthy of our trust. Further, we teach them to be dependent on us and thereby deny them the very education and competence we are put here on this earth to hand down. As hard as failure is to share as parents, it's hard to lay bare our failures and it's hard to teach it to our children. I think both Leahy and Dweck lend us a huge helping hand in how to navigate this tricky area. So today I've talked about seven things we can do to stop overprotecting and, let, and letting them grow during this school age time. Number one was preparing with next stage peers. Number two, doing things for the child that doing things for the child that the child could do independently. Number three, teach them what to do in tough situations. Number four, restricting independence unnecessarily. Number five, provide a platform for them to learn how to share back and forth. Number six, 
resolving conflicts for the child. Number seven, give time to failure and growth mindset. The school age years is a huge time span. Our children are all so different. I hope there's something I have said has triggered you to investigate something more and helped you make some decisions for your wonderful family. Not everything that we've talked about today will be re relevant for you right now. Find something and start. So now it's your turn. I'm sure I'm missing resources. I'd love you to send me in your recommendations for people, quotes or resources that have really made a difference in your letting them grow in your family. I'd love to hear about what happens in your family. Use the hashtag creatingfamilyhaven on Twitter and Instagram to talk about this episode or share your ideas in the Facebook group, The Society of Nimble Parents. The group is back. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for being here today. I know that there are many things you could be doing right now and I'm glad that you've chosen to be here today. Don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe. I know it seems like a small thing, but it's one of the best ways as it helps new people find the show. Show notes for today's show with all the links that I've talked about is at raisingplayfultots.com forward slash 199. While you're there, you can get the fortnightly Raising Playful Tots note that has some encouragement and ideas on our journey of intentional, simple parenting and simple play. I also have a growing library of parenting resources and printables over on my site to help support you with that too. So see you again next time. You've been listening to Raising Playful Tots, show number 199. Come over and play next week. Until then, find time for some unplugged play and intentional parenting. Join with me each week as we share, learn and laugh together about making the most of creating our family haven. Goodbye.